0: From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penzner. On this podcast, we discuss issues near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penzner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. I'm delighted to welcome to the studio today, Eric Winograd. Eric is the chief U.S. economist at Bernstein. Eric's been a senior economist on Wall Street for well over a decade. And prior to that, he worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the World Bank. Eric, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So no news to talk about today.
1: Right, it's very quiet.
0: So when I scheduled this, we were going to talk about the interesting research you've done about politics and economics and populism. And we'll get to that because I think it's, it's really fascinating work. But I'd be remiss if I didn't take five minutes of your time to get your thoughts on the economic impact of coronavirus, both in the U.S., which I know you focus on, but even your team more broadly globally.
1: Yeah, it really is the topic of the day and and the topic about which we have been having the most discussion in financial markets for the last couple of weeks. Uh, Unfortunately, it's also a topic where I don't think we have a lot of clarity. Uh, What we can do is talk a little bit about how we're assessing the impact, but I don't think that we can intelligently make a, a, a guesstimate even about what that impact will be.
0: Let me ask that question then. How are we assessing the impact?
1: Yeah, we're we're looking at it through two different channels. Uh, The first is fear, essentially. Changes to the way that businesses act, changes to the way that households act, changes to consumption patterns that result from the fear of getting the virus. And we sort these largely into what we would think of as the demand side of the economy. When people don't go to restaurants, when people don't take vacations, when people don't go to work, it changes the demand profile. It reduces economic activity. And we should be able to measure that uh, eventually, but we can't really measure it in real time.
0: And and you spend all the time with this data. When you say eventually, is this stuff we learn week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter? How how quickly will you get a sense for that?
1: So for this channel, we'll get a sense month to month. We do have surveys of things like consumer confidence that we can look at. And while they aren't a direct proxy for economic activity, if we see a sharp drop in consumer confidence, it's a pretty good bet that there will be something happening in terms of actual spending. And we get that data on a monthly frequency. We haven't yet got data for February in a lot of these data series, much less for March. So it is going to be a few weeks before we can have a tangible assessment of what impact fear will have had.
0: Now, the Fed is also looking at this data, and there seems to be some debate in the marketplace about what the Fed can do to help. Can, can you talk about how you think about that?
1: Sure. So, If the only problem dealing or that the economy were dealing with were this fear channel, monetary policy in the US that comes through the Fed would have a a reasonable role to play in cushioning the blow. Um, The Fed can reduce interest rates, it can provide liquidity, it can provide reassurance that financial markets will continue to function, that the banking sector will continue to function. And if all we're dealing with is a demand shock, then over time the tools that the Fed has at its disposal They've generally been effective, and we would expect them to have some effect this time as well. The problem, of course, is that fear is only one channel, and it's only on the demand side. The real impact from an economic perspective of the coronavirus is likely to be on the supply side. And what I mean by that is that policy actions taken by governments are likely to restrict economic growth in the near term. So think, for example, in China right. about shutting down a city of 11 million people or in Italy where they, they've closed off significant regions of, of major cities or uh, e- even simple things like saying that, that Italian soccer games can't have spectators at them, right? The demand, uh, The supply side restrictions are something that monetary policy can't offset, right? Monetary policy can't reopen a school. It can't reopen an airport. It can't lift a quarantine. And so there isn't very much at all. That monetary policy can do to to affect that, and here in the U.S., we have not seen yet the sorts of restrictions that would imply a significant supply side side shock to the economy. But over time, I, I think it's reasonable to assume that we will see some.
0: So it's an, it that would be a perfect transition to talking about politics. But before I do, the big discussion is interest rates, and I guess a two part question for you: What's your forecast on rates, and and then? What's the implication of the U.S. and a world where rates could virtually be around zero everywhere?
1: So that is my forecast. The rates will virtually be around zero everywhere. Um, I, I can't forecast as quickly as events are moving. So so right. any forecast that we've written down, this is moving more quickly than that. And, and so it's difficult to rely on those. What I will say is that based on the information available to us today, look, the Fed has already cut interest rates 50 basis points between meetings. Uh, I expect them to cut another 50 at next week's meeting, if not before. If they do cut before, they will probably also cut 50 next week, which is to say that within the next few weeks, I think it's more likely than not that the policy rate in the U.S. will be zero or will be essentially zero.
0: So and I saw on your note today, you talked about that from a monetary standpoint. What comes from the fiscal policy standpoint? And it may even be helpful for my listeners to help define what fiscal policy means.
1: Sure, so monetary policy first is just the Fed setting the level of interest rates, and if interest rates are zero, putting liquidity into financial markets in an effort to keep the economy and to keep financial markets in particular behaving in a way that it doesn't make the crisis worse. And maybe
0: even in the simple form, it makes it more likely that I'll go and take a mortgage or refinance or do stuff.
1: Over time, that's the point of monetary policy. It makes it less expensive to do stuff stuff. and more expensive to not do stuff. stuff. You're earning zero on your savings balances, so it gives you an incentive to spend. And again, if you're cushioning a demand shock, that tends to work. But the Fed isn't foolish. They know that they can't fix the coronavirus with monetary policy. All they're doing is trying to stabilize confidence, trying to reduce fear and panic in financial markets. And so far it hasn't worked because there is this fear of a supply side problem. And the supply side problem comes back again to the government response, right? And fiscal policy is the medium term response. The near term response is negative for growth. It's shutting things down, right? In the medium term, once things have reopened, fiscal policy, which is the amount of money that a government spends, right, has the potential to boost growth. So if we see fiscal stimulus, if the government commits itself to spending more money later this year, to spending more money even in the near term, that generates economic activity as well. And that is the kind of thing that could contribute to a recovery once we've gotten past the worst of the the crisis.
0: And when we talk about fiscal policy, spending money, that would mean something like infrastructure.
1: Ideally, infrastructure, but honestly, if you're trying to boost short-term growth, it doesn't very much matter what you spend it on. The objective is simply to get the plumbing working again, to, to, to get the economy functioning again.
0: And tax cuts also count in that? I know that's not an immediate, but that would be under the, the, the guise of fiscal policy.
1: So tax cuts do count as fiscal policy and they would represent a fiscal stimulus. However, I don't think that they would be stimulative to near-term growth because tax cuts take effect over time. People don't feel the extra money in their wallet right away. And frankly, the people who most benefit from tax cuts are the people least likely to spend the money in the first place. So tax cuts, as we discovered with the tax cut package of 2017, are not a recipe for for a material impact on growth over any but the shortest term.
0: So if you were ruler, what what would that fiscal policy be in your eyes?
1: So if I were ruler, if I were in charge... I think that a large fiscal spending package on infrastructure would be, any any economist would tell you that, right? Economists don't believe in magic, but the closest (laughs) we come to believing in magic is infrastructure. And the reason is that infrastructure doesn't just boost your growth today, right? As you're building roads, as you're building airports, as you're building ports, you boost growth from the near-term activity, but it also boosts your long-term growth. Right? Because you, you have, have a better port, right? you have a better road, you have a better airport. Uh, and so you get a near-term boost to growth, a long-term increase in productivity that leads to a longer-term increase in growth. Infrastructure spending, if done intelligently, is the one sort of fiscal spending that actually does pay for itself over time. Tax cuts clearly don't. Right, The result of the tax cuts we passed a couple years ago is a much larger budget deficit. I think there's plenty of evidence that tax cuts don't pay for themselves in, in government revenue terms. Uh, But infrastructure spending does.
0: So we're getting into the discussion of, which is where I wanted to take this, into politics and economics. You've written a lot about how those have become probably more intertwined than they have in most of our careers. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I think a large part of it has to do with the way that our economy has evolved post-crisis. If you think back to the period before the crisis, there wasn't a lot of coordination between central banks, uh, between the Fed in particular, and the Treasury Department, monetary and fiscal policy ran on separate tracks. During the crisis, it was sort of all hands on deck. So the Fed, which is an apolitical institution, which doesn't take politics into account, had to work very closely with the political side of things, with the fiscal authority, because we were in a crisis and and they needed everything pointing in the same direction to try to get us out of the crisis. The combination of them having worked together has never really faded back to the way it was pre-crisis. There's more communication, let's say, between the different parts of monetary and fiscal policy making than there used to be. And post-crisis, the economy has evolved in a way that has served to dramatically widen inequality. Uh, and again, as an economist, we don't believe in magic. We also don't believe in value statements. Yeah. So I'm not going to say this is good, bad, or indifferent. It's right. just a, an observation just of is. the empirical fact. Inequality has increased dramatically within the United States and other places as well. And that has changed the way that our political system works. Right. We're accustomed to thinking about politics on a left versus right axis, right? You, you have the Democrats and the, and the Republicans or the liberals and the conservatives or however you choose to phrase it. What we've seen in the last few years, though, is a, a new axis, if you will, a north-south axis instead of an east-west one, uh, where one side, on, on, you know when we make the graph of it, we put it on the south side, sort of an, an underpinning uh, of the entire system is – you can call it cosmopolitan liberalism, or you can think of it as corporatism. It's this idea that there is an established, entrenched system, and that everyone playing the political game, to one degree or another, believes in that system. And
0: whether they're center left, center right. Center
1: left, center right. You know, it, it, it's all on this sort of shared understanding that there is this, a group of elites uh, who generally make the decisions. And you know the U.S. is a representative democracy, so we've always had this idea that there are people who we vote for who make the decisions, rather than having a vote on everything. Um, corporations have played an increasing, lar- an increasing role in this. All the things that sort of define the way our system has worked for a very long time are sh- on this shared understanding. But because inequality has risen so much, a great many people in the U.S. and globally have ceased to believe in that system. Or more accurately, they believe that it exists and they don't believe that it serves them. And so what we've seen is a a dramatic move toward populism. And and populism stands diametrically opposed to this sort of cosmopolitan, liberal, corporatist sort of world. And it's the belief that instead of undertaking the sorts of things that we have undertaken, whether it's globalization and free trade or uh, however you want to think about the, the global economy, that instead we should be focused on the little guy and the here and now, instead of the business sector, on, that, on the individual, instead of on globalism, and we want to focus on localism. Uh, we want to take care of us, me, mine, ours, and not necessarily deeply engage with the rest of the world. And, and that populist impulse has dramatic consequences for economic policy because it has a very different set of, of policy prescriptions.
0: So, so what not we talk about what, what are the policy prescriptions for the populist?
1: So for populists, remember that the, the, their main constituents are people who don't feel represented by the system and who feel left behind. And so the main objective is to benefit those people. The first thing you have to do in order to do that is to generate economic growth you need to find a way to help those people become wealthier right or to feel so you got to grow you got to get you money gotta in their pocket right. got to grow so you got to grow and while you're growing you got to get more money in their pocket so you want to distribute right the the, the wealth of an economy or the growth in income you want to distribute that income in a way that favors the little guy not the big guy so you
0: got to grow but but in a certain direction correct it's got it
1: correct um And that has a whole host of ways. There are a whole host of ways you can do that, right? You you, you can do it through a a more progressive tax code that taxes the rich more. And and a lot of these are proposals that that you hear talked about. You you can do a wealth tax. You can do a guaranteed minimum income. Uh, There are a lot of ways you can do it. But the the primary objective is to get money into the pockets of the little guy.
0: And if you're trying to do that and you're trying to have this – I guess part of it's us versus them mentality, and, and who them is could be uh, another neighborhood, it could be another country, it could be another demographic. If It, it could be anybody who works in finance. It could be, could be us. And so if it's us versus them, um, wouldn't that make you more likely to set up barriers to trade or borders?
1: For sure. And one of the common features of populist policy across the span of history is localism and is protectionism. Right. Free trade is the epitome of the globalist, corporatist sort of mindset. Uh, it has benefited, again, putting on my, my pure economics hat here, globalization has benefited everybody, but it has benefited the wealthy and those with access to the global economy much more than people who have not. Right, The owner of the factory benefits from globalization much more than the workmen within that factory. Got it. So you do get this push to reverse globalization, to undo free trade, to have protectionism. And you can see that very clearly in the US.
0: So, so I, that you, you beat me to it. So we've had a period most recently where tariffs have been imposed to, to break, the, break down or at least impede this notion of globalism and, and, and have more of a populist bias. Is there any in your economic, ha- with your economic hat on, any data that supports it does or doesn't work?
1: Well, again, it depends on what you mean by does or doesn't work. I, I think it is pretty clear that it has made growth slower for everybody. And that's one of the ironies of it is that it is a populist policy that is put in place to appeal to people who feel left behind by the global system. And yet it has probably had the impact of hurting those same people disproportionately
0: and is there economic data that would say hey uh, hey, places that are more exposed to global trade have been hurt more by global trials than not
1: for sure and the offset to the idea that it has hurt workers in the u.s is that it has hurt workers elsewhere more and so again if you take on the populist mindset that might be good enough, right? We may not be benefiting, but other people are hurting more. And certainly those countries that have been most exposed, that are most exposed to trade, that that do the most trading, have hurt the most. So a country like Singapore that functionally does nothing but trade trade, has had a really dramatic decline in their GDP. And even countries like Germany and and Mexico and Canada, uh, where trade is a big part of what they do, have either had a a growth hit or, in the case of Mexico and Canada, uh, very quickly reached a new trade accord with the United States to prevent uh, anything significant from happening. And for what it's worth, they played it pretty clever because the, the new NAFTA, if you will, isn't materially different than the other one. And it's got the U.S. administration off their back. Interesting. Right. So, so they didn't really give up very much. And, and they get to continue sort of as, as things were before.
0: So back to this notion of populism, what would the monetary and fiscal policy generally be of a, of a populist agenda?
1: So from a populist perspective a lot of the old tools that, that we would think about or a lot of the the ways we think about the world working don't necessarily apply. So populist fiscal policy is almost always expansionary because you're trying to get money into people's pockets the easiest and because you have a specific set of people who you want to benefit, right? The easiest way to do that is for the government to do it, right? To Just simply do it. yeah, do it. You either give them money, you employ them, you you find ways to redistribute income to suit your political populist purposes. That almost always results in dramatically increasing budget deficits over time. Um, Populists generally don't have a great deal of respect for the idea that you're supposed to run a balanced budget or or, or something close to it because their priorities point in a different direction. Um, and, And again, here in the U.S., our budget deficit has increased dramatically over the last several years, even though the economy is expanding. It's very, very unusual to run a budget deficit as large as we are running today during a time when the economy is not in or just in the aftermath of a recession. And that's a clear populist impulse.
0: So I'm going to, I know we're sitting here in the coronavirus time, and it leads a lot of people to think back to '08. You were talking about how, how the government, uh, monetary and fiscal authorities, were, were both pulling in the same direction to get us out of the crisis. Would it be fair to say under uh, a populist agenda They would also not want the fiscal and monetary policy to run independent or counter to each other. They would want them both to work, pull the same way, but but not necessarily in a crisis.
1: Yeah, very much so. Uh, Another one of the defining features of populism is a, a lack of respect historically for the sorts of checks and balances or the separation of powers that have long defined our system here. Uh, a populist leader would believe that as the representative of the people, he or she should have the authority to define the economic agenda, both monetarily and fiscally. So, so the idea of an independent central bank doesn't fit very neatly into a populist impulse. Uh, and again, I think you can see that in the US, where the current Fed has come under uh, much more direct, much more public criticism uh, from the president than has been the case, certainly in most of our professional lifetimes.
0: So if we don't think about Government policy, from a pure economic standpoint, as left and right, right, right for less regulation, less taxation; left for more centrally panned, higher taxation. Just very broad economic terms, and and we we pivot that to this. I think you use the term cosmopolitan liberalism versus populism. Is that why there is a connective thread between what I think some would say is the far left and the far right, meaning Trump and Bernie Sanders, from an economic perspective?
1: Absolutely right. I I think that. Uh, viewed through a, from a north-south axis perspective rather than a left-right one, the, the, the further left reaches and the further right reaches of our political spectrum on the historical spectrum actually share a great many things in common. That, that isn't a new phenomenon for what it's worth. If you think back to some of the more conservative and more liberal politicians back 20 or 30 years, you, you'll find similar skepticism about th- things like free trade. and th- There's always been a you know, Rather than thinking of it as a linear left versus right, it kind of circles back on itself when you get to the, the further yep. reaches of it. What's interesting about the current environment, though, is that the further reaches of it aren't the further reaches anymore. right? Back to, to why we think politics is influencing the economy a lot more now than it used to, it's because the range of topics under discussion has widened so dramatically. Right, what used to be far left and far right aren't really that far left and far right anymore. And so you do hear us talking about things like trade wars, which would have been unthinkable over the course of the last couple of decades, or fiscal indiscipline, or uh, wealth taxes, or guaranteed minimum income, or, you know, look, modern monetary theory is, is, is another one where uh, it, it is not a newfangled idea in the sense that it's been around in an academic sense for a long time. But as a part of our public discussion, uh, the idea that you really shouldn't worry about deficits and that the government should borrow uh, as much money as it needs to and that you should use fiscal policy rather than monetary to, moder- to moderate supply and demand in the economy, look, that's something that would not have been said in polite company, if you will, <laughs> 20 years ago or even 10 years ago right. or probably even five. and so. The the way in which politics influences the economy is much more meaningful now because the range of issues under discussion is so much broader.
0: So uh, I'm going to end up with a two part question. The first part, I think, is a a pretty quick answer. So do you view from your seat populism as a risk to the current system or current economic system? for sure right? All right, so
1: because it's predicated on this notion of upending it right if, if if the system isn't representing you you have no incentive to preserve it
0: so if it's the risk and and in your economic hat if you get to play ruler again what would you do today to mitigate that risk from a, from pure economic policy so that we don't go down that path
1: so i can't answer it from pure economic policy because the things that have to be done are purely political right that they, they Interesting. are they are necessarily political right and my own opinion is that the, the best way to mitigate this impulse or, or to sort of cut it off, if you will, is to give it some of what it wants, right, and to do it consensually through an electoral process. The real danger with populism is that if unchecked, it does lead to revolution, right, and it seems far-fetched in the U.S., and it should – But populism, at the end of the day, is about upending the existing system, which is a messy and uncomfortable and unpleasant process. So I think that the best outcome we can hope for is that as a body politic, we come to an agreement, not everyone has to agree, but a general sense in which we do try to minimize or to reduce even the inequality in our society, that it does probably require a redistribution of wealth and of income, that it does probably require higher taxes on the rich and more, uh, more social programming, social benefits, whether it's health care, minimum wages, whatever it is, some sort of redistribution that makes people who are otherwise prone to this populist mindset buy back into the system. Right? I, I think there are other ways to do it. I think a, a revitalization of the union movement would be a wonderful thing in terms of giving people a voice, making them feel represented and that they have a seat at the table. Um, it is to a degree about feeling connected and feeling a part of the system, and many people don't right now. And you know, you, you, you have to buy people back into the system.
0: It's probably the most interesting time to be doing your job with the macro environment and then the current volatility we've got in the market, I think this would highlight the notion of these are interesting times to be living in, right?
1: Well, every day we say that, the, that they're interesting and every day they get more interesting. So it's, a, it's that kind of world right now.
0: Eric, I appreciate you taking the time to come in. I, I really know it's been a busy uh, few weeks on your calendar. So thank you for coming by.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: To our listeners, thanks for taking the time. This and all episodes can be found wherever you access your podcast. If you can, do us a favor and like, share, rate, and review. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.pensner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Until next time.